make sure you got one of these. Uh, they've got them back there right where, right where um, Mike Baker is. So if you didn't get one, run and snag one, and we'll go through how these work when we get to that point in the service. Um, who here... Uh, who here has been to, to Blockbuster in the last week or so? <laughs> or maybe the last month? Anybody been to Blockbuster in the last month? There's some changes that have taken place. What, what's the reason you haven't been to Blockbuster in the last month? They're closed. Why did they close? Nobody rents movies anymore? They don't? So what we're saying is that technology has changed, right? Technology's changed and we're, we don't go and buy, you know, rent, you know, old video cassettes or, or DVDs. And listen, I'm part of that problem. I'm going to put a whole industry out of business, but I'm part of the problem because like, if it comes to watching a movie, if I've got to do this, I'm not going to watch a movie. That's way too much. If I don't, if I can do this, I'll watch it. But that's it. That's as far as I'm going for my entertainment. That's, but what's interesting is, is we wouldn't, actually have you know Netflix or Hulu or anything like that if we hadn't had Blockbuster preceding it. It, it was technology that, well, it's way outdated now. It's, it's old, but it was necessary. It was a necessary step to get us to where we are now. D- Jesus is actually going to be talking about outdated things in our text today, uh, but it's not going to be technical issues or anything like that. It, it's it's going to be about uh, social and religious concepts that have to accommodate something new that has come into the world. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be reading in chapter 5 today. If you want to follow along, you want to find your way to chapter 5 now. Last week, we read about two notable miracles that Jesus did uh, that not only brought healing to those who were in need, but also made bold statements about what the kingdom of God is about. What God is up to in reaching untouchables and pronouncing forgiveness of sins. It was a breathtaking view of God's intent for humanity and for the world. Still, in this story, by touching lepers and pronouncing forgiveness of sins, Jesus has placed himself well outside of the accepted religious boundaries of the system of his day. And he's going to continue in that same passage, in the or same pattern in the passage that we're going to be reading today. Through all of this, we're, we're meant to recognize that Jesus is introducing to us a whole new way of doing society, a whole new way in which we as human beings socially interact with each other. We're meant to see that this is how life works when God is in charge. All of these things that Jesus is doing... They're clues for us. They're meant to inform us. This is what it's like when God is in charge. This is how we interact with each other. This is how our priorities and our values get shaped by what it is that God's doing under his reign. Uh, this is the kind of social culture that, that should emerge when we embrace these values that are revealed through Jesus, through what he teaches and how he interacts with human beings. So this morning we're going to discover that In this order of God's kingdom, things are not compatible with old religious structures. And uh, there's going to be a collision between the old and the new in in our passage today. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. So if you're there in Luke chapter 5, let's pick up where we left off last time with verse 27. It says, later, as Jesus left town, 
he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me, be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Again, one of those strange passages like, did he, did he lock the booth up behind him? Did he grab anything that was in there? Did he just bolt? Or is this something that he determined in his heart at that moment? When he heard that, this is where I'm going to go and started making the preparations. There's no way to tell for sure. But what we see is that in his heart, no matter how it played out, he was committed. He was going to do this. Now, the thing about this, this is a massive collision right here between the old world and the new one that Jesus is introducing in, 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 a, in an act that seems almost insignificant as we read it. It's so easy to just bounce through this, this text and miss what's here. Jesus walks by the tax collector's booth and he asks this guy to follow him and he does it. And it seems so simple, but the world is upended in this little scene. The reason is tax collecting was a hated, unclean profession in the eyes of first century Jewish people. Now, not just like the way we look at it, like nobody likes the IRS. We know that. I mean, that's, you know, we, we avoid the IRS like we avoid death, the two certain things in life. But it, but, but it was even more than that. There's, there's layers to this that's beyond just, you know, uh, the, the kind of political issues that we have in mind here. This, this, activity of collecting taxes was lumped in with with idolatry, adultery, and murder. Every kind of evil deed was associated still with tax collecting. The reason was tax collectors were working for the hated Roman government. They were arms. They were instruments of what the Roman Empire was doing there. The empire demanded the provinces that they had conquered pay and provide revenues for the empire to continue to expand. It drove home the reality for Jewish people that they were not autonomous. They were not a free kingdom of God uh, on, on the earth. And the Romans, you know, in order to keep power and maintain things, they were happy enough to look the other way when tax collectors charged extra in order to line their own pockets, and most did, based on the, what records we have of that, and especially according to Josephus. They were considered traitors to their nation and to God. They were excluded from all religious fellowship, in, you know, obviously from the temple, but that even included synagogues as well. Their money was considered tainted and defiled anybody who would accept their money. According to one rabbi, there was no hope for the tax collector. Now, that doesn't, I mean, obviously, that didn't play out in its strictest sense in society because, like, he would never be able to, he'd never be able to spend money if that's the way that worked. But obviously, from the religious perspective of how he was viewed, what his, his position within the larger society was, this gives us an insight as to what it looked like. They were very, very unpopular people. So we're seeing a pattern here with Jesus as we're following his story here. In in the last section, Jesus reached out to touch a leper, someone untouchable because of possible physical and religious contamination in that. Now he's calling someone who's socially untouchable. And again, we see that God's focus is on the margins of society. He's looking, actively looking for those people who are, are marginalized and potentially oppressed, though on a, on a, like a, a financial level, this is not an oppressed person. He's the oppressor. But at the same time, on a social level, he's certainly got a stigma attached to him. 
This was a shocking turn of events here. Jesus asked this guy to become a disciple while he was sitting in the tax collector's booth before anything had changed in his life at all that could be measured or noted. Jesus asks, asks him, asks him to come and follow him. This is an amazing and exciting and, and challenging aspect of Jesus's behavior. And, and he does this in all of the gospel accounts. And what it tells us, and this is, this is something that, that's going to be apropos for our current generation. It's possible, you know, the terminology that I'm going to use here is going to be outmoded 10 years from now. If anybody would ever possibly listen to anything I say 10 years from now, it'll be like, oh, that's back when everybody was talking about that. So I'm going to use a phrase here that's current, culturally current, uh, and it might be outmoded soon. But what we see in this as touching our current situation, that God's kingdom is the opposite of cancel culture. Cancel culture is a very modern terminology, but its practice goes back as far as we can look into human history. This is what humans do. We're good at it. And if you're not familiar with the term, cancel culture is basically our most recent form of social ostracism. Uh, the pop culture dictionary defines it as withdrawing support for or canceling public figures and companies after they've done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. And it's largely being talked about in the arena of free speech in our country. But really, the issues that are at stake here are are deeply personal. It runs far more uh, deeply than just issues of whether or not I have the right to say something. People have lost jobs have been accosted by strangers. They've, they, people have taken their own lives because of the backlash they've faced from some either questionable tweet or Facebook post, or it may not even be that. It may even just be the perceived violation of what we have as a current uh, uh, cultural orthodoxy that's, that's ever-present here in, in our society. And it's easy to do. Man, it's easy to do this, to fall into this, to, to join in with the cancel culture because, man, it makes you feel pretty special. It certainly gives you a sense of superiority over the person who's being canceled. But I would challenge anyone to look at Jesus and how he ministered and how he treated people and show me any sort of compatibility between Jesus and cancel culture. Find it for me. I'll be glad to examine it and, and look at it. But I can't, in my research and study of who Jesus is and how he lived and what he, how he interacted with his fellow human being, I can't find anything close to cancel culture. Had Jesus followed cancel culture, well, he would have spit on the tax booth as he went by, shouted traitor, maybe spray-painted an anarchy symbol on the booth as he went by. It's possible many Israelites did that because that was the cancel culture of their day. But instead of that, Jesus reached out to the human being still in that tax collector's booth and extended the offer of friendship to him. Cancel culture is not compatible with kingdom culture. They, they don't work. They don't work together. We're going to have to choose one or the other. And before we all sit here imagining all the other people, <laughs> those rotten millennials and the liberals that I must be referring to, let me just say that the church is not immune 
from falling into cancel culture behavior. In fact, if I were to give you my honest opinion, which I'm about to, I believe the church, especially the modern evangelical church, has perfected cancel culture. As a kid, I remember churches hosting, you know, record-burning parties. If you grew up around church, you, you got to remember those. You know, you're going to get all your rock and roll albums and you're going to burn them in a big pile. We're going to praise the Lord because we've, we've shown these horrible sinners how what we think of their art and their work, we vilified them, we called them demons. What is that but cancel culture? And there's a whole thing about the rock and roll and the racist roots behind that doctrine of, of calling rock and roll evil. More recently, I recall a Christian worship leader who had the audacity to share his honest belief that he didn't believe in a young earth creation account. He read Genesis, he interpreted Genesis differently. And the backlash from fellow Christians on this guy was so intense that he had to, you know, he had to step down. He he had to resign from ministry altogether. And now I'm not even sure that he identifies as Christian. The backlash was so, now that's on him. He'll have to figure his own thing out. But the backlash from the Christian community of canceling this guy because he had a different interpretation of scripture. When I remember when Rob Bell years back wrote a book uh, where he posed some questions about the afterlife and John Piper tweeted out, farewell, Rob Bell, basically canceling him. It's easy to cancel. It's a, you, listen, let's just be honest. It feels good to cancel somebody else because, man, we feel so morally superior to whoever it is that we're canceling. At least I'm not like that publican over there. I'm better than that. Publican, not Republican. Publican. It's a tax collector. It's another biblical term. Zond on me. I could be creating all. I might get canceled over that one. <laughs> this 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 cannibalistic sort of culture has has been able to heighten exponentially with the platform of social media. Now we've got keyboard bravado that makes us ready to say all kinds of things, and this this constant back and forth. It's not even like we can look at the social divide we have and say one side's doing it and the other side is suffering from it. It is back and forth. It's from both sides and it's constant. Someone says something that others find offensive so they cancel that person and others come to the defense of the person who was canceled and they cancel out the cancelers and it's this never-ending perpetual cycle of outrage and anger and self-righteousness. Meanwhile... Jesus is back at the tax collector's booth with his hand outstretched saying, let's be friends. Follow me. I'll show you how to live. We have to decide. Because, I mean, you know, we can just drift along and this is the way the culture does things or whatever, but we have to decide who we're going to follow. Because we can't follow both cancel culture and Jesus. They don't work. They don't work together. They're going opposite directions. They lead to different destinations. So we have to determine in our heart what we're going to do with this, what we're going to do with a cultural tendency. Are we going to follow that? Or are we going to look at Christ and follow his example? In fact, this becomes even more clear in the next section. We'll keep reading. Verse 29. Still glad you came today? Verse 29, later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Levi, the tax collector. 
Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religion and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus's disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? <laughs> NLT, that's fun. Verse 31, Jesus answered, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. Okay, so in response to this amazing acceptance that Jesus shows him, Levi, who we identify as Matthew, uh, it's the same story that gets told in Matthew's story, uh, gospel, and he's identified as Matthew, so apparently he's got two names at work here. But Matthew, Levi, throws a dinner party, and he invites all of his tax collector friends because, well, who else is going to come? I mean, he's not hanging out with anybody else, so it's got to be the other people who are outside of the community of God. Well, I guess we can add the name of Jesus to that because Jesus shows up and and hangs out at this party and this doesn't escape the notice of the Pharisees who are apparently hanging out uh, around the courtyard like a bunch of stray cats in the driveway meowing at him watching all of the activity inside and they ask Jesus's disciples why he's eating with the riffraff and again so what are the disciples are the disciples out maybe the disciples went out there like you would with stray cats they got a stick and they're trying to shoo them away or either way they're asking the question why is he eating with them? And, and we might not get that, but this has to do with, with Near Eastern views about table fellowship. You know, in our culture, eating with somebody, that's, you know, what's the big deal? I'll go eat. I'll eat with anybody. That's not a big deal. We don't, we don't make that much of it. But in that time and in that culture, to eat with someone actually constituted an alliance. It meant that you were allying yourself with that person. We're both eating the same thing, so we are both part of each other in that sense that way. It was very intimate and and very significant. And that is what had the religious leaders shocked at that point. But Jesus gives his famous response. Those who are well don't need a doctor. It's those who are sick who need this. So like when I go to the doctor, I know several things. First of all, I know that I am really sick because I don't normally go to the doctor uh, otherwise. And so it means that I know that I need help and that I can't help myself. So in other words, Jesus is is reaching out to those who realize they need help. He seeks people who recognize that they're not all, that they can or could be, that something is amiss here in this life, and it's not leading me where I was hoping it would. And, And what's really interesting to me is that there is no mention of Jesus teaching this group about the evils of their way. Now, The text is silent on that, so the possibility exists that he was. But the narrative's focus, what Luke determined to tell us about, was that Jesus is just eating with them. He's accepting them, showing them kindness and mercy. And Jesus describes that as a doctor treating the sick. Proximity to Jesus becomes the transformational issue here. They had invited Jesus as a guest, but his acceptance of that invitation and willingness to eat with them and his loving gesture towards them actually encircles them all in and they suddenly become his guest in this. And so here we see the reason the cancel culture is incompatible with kingdom culture because God's kingdom advances through inclusion, not through religious exclusivity not through creating a religious system or structure that that carefully keeps out the unwanted. 
For Jesus, outreach was practiced by association, by getting as close as he could with the people who were the farthest from being like him. This is the way the early church advanced the kingdom of God. One of the early church fathers, Origen, and it, it, you know, he had some crazy doctrinal things going on, possibly in the, you know, first century, second century, but he wrote about how the first church community around him would regularly invite people into their homes for the fellowship meals that they'd have. And, and he wrote that as people observed how Christians were treating each other and caring for each other, that those outside of the faith actually wanted in when they saw how Christians were caring for each other. They wanted what the church had simply by virtue of being close to it and recognizing something was different here. How does that square then with the role of morality police that the modern evangelical church has taken on in recent years? It's, it's been an ongoing temptation for the church throughout our history to, to recognize areas of common culture that are destructive or corrupting and want to sound an alarm by attacking whatever sinful thing we may perceive and, and, and suddenly becomes a cause to condemn this or that as a cause that we've taken up. But because people are associated with whatever it may be, it automatically becomes an us versus them tug of war. And and the only thing that serves is to protect our own sense of moral superiority. It does nothing. That sort of tug of war, us versus them ideology does nothing to, to change a fellow human's heart. And therefore, it doesn't do anything to advance the kingdom of God. Nothing. We don't see Jesus doing it. You'll pay attention closely as we go through this gospel, the longest gospel, the longest account we have of Jesus' life. You're not going to see him taking on this role of running around pinpointing everything in the society around him, apart from maybe the religious society. So, Rob, what are you saying? I mean, does this mean that, like, morality, we're not supposed to think about morality, nothing it doesn't matter anymore? Of course I'm not saying that. Of course I'm not saying that morality means nothing. Was Jesus advocating extortion and oppression of the poor when he ate with the tax collectors? The Pharisees thought he was. They thought that's exactly what he was doing. By... by by eating with them and joining together with them, showing them that he would be willing to ally his life with theirs if they'll follow him, if they'll come to him. Jesus, by being inclusive with Levi, was able to lead Levi on a journey of transformation that the Pharisees could never have accomplished by excluding Levi and his friends. And the irony in all of this is that the Pharisees didn't realize they were the sick ones too. Just because they thought of themselves as well, as righteous, didn't mean that it was true. Just because I don't go to a doctor very often thinking I'm very healthy doesn't mean it's true. When I get there, I find out all kinds of stuff like, where have you been? Uh, that kind of thing. So, you know, they, the Pharisees needed Jesus's inclusive, life-transforming love as much as anyone. But because they saw themselves as superior to others it diminished their understanding of just how desperate their need was. As long as we're focused on somebody else's sin, it's easy to forget about what it is God needs to transform in our own lives and hearts. 
And here's the thing. The reality of Jesus's inclusion means that we all have a chance. I mean, this isn't something we should actually freak out over. (laughs) You know, some people may be like, why do we always have to talk about Jesus, including people? Well, I'm glad he did, because I don't think I'd be here if, if he didn't. The inclusion of the kingdom of God means that no matter where we are or where we've been, we have the opportunity of friendship with Jesus if we'll just trust in that and follow him. Look at him, read about who he is. Follow his example of how he lived and and interacted with with humanity. Well, so the confrontational dialogue that we've been reading here continues, verse 33. One day, some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples pray or fast and pray regularly. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I'm so glad you laughed at that because it's great comedy right here in this. Jesus responded, do wedding guests fast while they're celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they'll fast. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. And that's where we'll stop here today. So here the Pharisees are trying to shame Jesus religiously. They inquire about his habits of fasting and clearly contrasting the party that he's just been to uh, with John the Baptist and his followers who fasted and abstained from those kinds of banquets and Pharisees as well. There were annual feasts that that Israelites were called to observe that included fasting in, in the law. Uh, but there were also feasts that were introduced by the rabbinical traditions of around that time that were mourning Israel's exile, hoping to show God their contrition and desire to have God's kingdom be established on this earth to restore Israel and bring about his purpose and his will. This is likely the kind of fasting that they're talking about, something that was proposed by the rabbis of that time as a way of, you know, communally as a, as a nation showing God their desire. If the people who are called by my name will humble themselves and call out. And that was the idea behind this. We'll humble ourselves. We'll fast. We'll ask God to send his, his kingdom. And so these guys are confused by Jesus's behavior. They're sort of saying, listen, John took the restoration of God's kingdom seriously. You know, he, he taught us to fast. The Pharisees take it seriously. They fast all the time, but you seem to do a lot of partying around here. How is that going to aid us in being restored by God? And so Jesus' response is basically saying, I am the restoration. I'm the restoration you've been fasting for and waiting for. There'll come a moment here where things get confusing and I'm not around and they're going to mourn and fast then. But but what Israel's been looking for, it's right here in front of you. All the promises are fulfilled in Jesus, in, in what he's doing right here, in showing mercy to the outsiders, all of it that they were waiting for was being revealed. In fact, the party that he was at was a sign that this was happening. 
it was uh, the sign of the party. I get behind that sign, Rob. Anyway, the, the, that's God's kingdom is breaking in. And all of the, the Old Testament prophets who were looking for that day to come would always describe it in, in terms of a party. In the book of Revelation, uh, as, as the thing concludes, there's the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's always a banquet, a party. This was a sign that this is happening. Jesus is there with the people that you wouldn't expect. He's brought them together. He's enjoying this time of fellowship and feasting with them. There was a reason to rejoice because God's kingdom actually has come. Not in its fullness yet, but it's definitely here and invading. And he's trying to get across that, that this truth, God's kingdom has arrived through Jesus and all that's accomplished in our lives and in this world is not going to happen through religion or through religious practices, but through Jesus's power to restore and redeem lives. That's how things change in this world. And then he, he expounds on this. He contrasts the old system of religion with the way that God's kingdom is showing up presently through him. And he does it through two illustrations, which are a contrast between something that is flexible and something that is rigid and unmoving. The old cloth, the illustration of the old cloth, has already reached a point where it no longer is changing or shrinking or fading. So a new piece of fabric would, you know, that hasn't been shrunk would start that process and tear away from whatever it was that it was patching. They would actually do damage to each other. They're not compatible in that sense. Then he talks about wine going through the fermentation process where they'd put it into leather bottles that was new leather so it would be flexible and it could expand. So as the wine undergoing the fermentation process would expand and the gases would cause it to move, then the wine skin is flexible. It can change shape with whatever the wine needs it to be. If they put it in an old, brittle, hardened leather skin, then when the wine expands, it would crack the rigid skin and everything would be ruined. So his contrast is between the new world of God's inbreaking kingdom and the old inflexible law of Moses and the rabbinical traditions around it. He's not denigrating the former. He's not trying to say it was bad or wrong. It's, you know, it, it was an important step in the story to the, to the new wine that Jesus is introducing. But he's just revealing their mismatch, like we talked about before, old tech with new tech. I, you know, if somebody handed me a, a VHS of something, I wouldn't even know what to do with it anymore. I don't have a VHS, you know, I can, you know, I can try to, I can't do anything with it. And that's the point. It wasn't that they were bad or awful or terrible. I got some actually good memories on some VHS tapes that probably need to try to find a VHS player for. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that it's old tech. It, it's not, it's not helpful or useful in, in this way. And that's what Jesus is saying about the inbreaking of God's kingdom with solid, hard religious structures that are immovable. And his point is pretty clear that the, the culture of God's kingdom is not compatible with rigid religious structures. This new world of God's kingdom is an ongoing development. It's not a static position taken in life. It is an ever-moving, expanding. It's changing shape to address differing cultures and generation generations as it goes along. That's how the gospel has come down to us through two millennia, 2,000 years, and it's still relevant to our world because it's flexible. It's ever morphing to address the differing cultures and the different times. It's constantly changing its shape to be able to fit 
and, and meet the needs of any culture or generation. Now, that is not to say that the message of the gospel changes or that there's no fixed truth. But as that truth is pressed into each different audience, it takes the shape that enables the understanding and appropriate response of whatever people it, it comes in contact with. That's how the gospel has come this many years through so many different cultures and so many different generations, and it still remains relevant because it's not a, a fixed structure. It's not a cookie-cutter stamp of a, a pattern of religion. It's something far more exciting than that. I mean, honestly, I can tell you that, I, you know, for the, the years I've been teaching out of the Word, out of God's Word, I've never run out of ways that, that it surprises me or that it, it suddenly recognize and see how it fits in some way that I hadn't recognized before with the culture that, that is present. You know, I used to view the kingdom of God as, and the gospel as this thing that had been established a long time ago before I was ever around. It got established in kind of like a castle that was built. And that my role as a leader was to, you know, man the castle walls. I, you know, I, I'm supposed to guard this place that was handed to me and, and, you know, make sure that I take shots at anything that came near that looked threatening. And anyway, you know, who's that? What's he teaching? We'll figure it out later. You know, there was, I, my goal, as I understood it, was to preserve and protect what had already been established. But God healed me of that. And I've come to see it very differently. The kingdom of God is this ongoing, developing adventure. It's an ongoing process of discovery as we go. I'm an explorer. I'm not protecting some archaic, rigid castle. I'm an explorer in this whole new world that has emerged on the scene since Jesus has come. And and certainly a lot of people have gone before me. And I still come across trails that are new to me, but I can clearly see somebody else has gone down. But I see new things as I go along. I discover new things as we go, things that I hadn't seen before. It's, it's constant. It's alive. It's constantly uh, it, it challenging and exciting, at least to me. And, and while the truths don't get altered, the gospel is able to accommodate an ever-changing world because the structure is intended to be flexible. Why do you think that the New Testament never gave us a specific order or pattern for how it is that we approach worship? Why do you think the New Testament never gave us all the instructions as to where the altar should be placed or if there should be an altar or where you place the cross or where the pews should be lined up or who has more authority, a pastor or an evangelist or a prophet or an apostle? None of those things are explained very clearly, and I think it's genius. It was genius. Well, of course it's genius. It's God, because it's constantly able to move and flex with whatever is happening within the culture that that gospel is emerging, so that the gospel then goes and meets the felt need of any given time and place. The truths don't get altered, but like a new wineskin, that truth is able to, to stretch and move as God is doing it. Now... A quick glance at church history reminds us that we have institutionalized the gospel and the work of the kingdom over and over and over again in the 2,000 years that the church has been around. We're just prone to it. Like I said, we're good at it. I mean, everybody needs a skill. We got one. But just like Jesus says in the last part in verse 39, some people complain that the old wine is just fine. 
This is fine. I don't need anything new. We've always done it this way. It's always looked like this. We've always said it this way. N.T. Wright said, novelty is deeply threatening, especially when people have built their lives around the old way. The church's history is this ongoing seesaw. And, you know, if you, if you take time to go back, just even like I said, a cursory look tells you the story of what the church has gone through. We institutionalize truth, and then reformers come along every so often and challenge the rigid institution and regain that flexibility and movement of the Holy Spirit that's so needed until, of course, those reformers die and the people who came after them institutionalized what they pioneered. And so someone has to come after them and challenge the system. And it just seems like this cycle that goes on through history. But it's not necessarily a negative thing as I look at it because it's resulted in this amazing branching out uh, of the, the story of the gospel. All over the world, like tributaries of a river, branching out and delivering living water to an ever-changing landscape as it goes. So the culture of God's kingdom isn't compatible with rigid structures or law or tradition. There needs to be a flexibility in the structure for this expanding and effervescent move of God that has come through Jesus. So this is the calling of the church, to keep our focus on the primary mission. And our primary mission has to do with merciful restoration, not mere moralism. We're we're called to learn the practice of accepting people just like Jesus did. Just and let go of cultural norms that, that cancel people out. We're called to a radical inclusivity that gets people into proximity of Jesus and then allow Jesus the space to transform people as he desires, as he sees fit. Our calling as the church is to point to Jesus, not to promote religious activities and and we can do that by being brave enough to offer the hope of God's transformational love to anyone we encounter without hesitation without prequalifiers being conduits of God's grace on earth and remaining flexible for his expanding unfurling and surprising invasion of the kingdom of God into this world we can do all of these things if we'll develop a culture of humility. Because ultimately that's what all of these things come down to. If we'll be humble enough to recognize we don't have all the answers, we don't have everything together, we're all still deeply in need of Jesus. We're all still following his lead on this. We can do this by not taking ourselves too seriously. And, and, and when we do that, when we don't take ourselves, we'll take God seriously, but not ourselves. We're prone to do things wrong at times. And, and if we recognize and realize that, then we're not to hold too tightly to our traditions or our institutions. This is the kingdom of God culture we're called to. And Jesus modeled it for us. He showed us how it works. So let's follow his lead and let's continue this adventure on, following him into this bold and exciting and surprising enterprise of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Right on? All right, very cool. Well, this morning we're going to...